But at the time when she when they were bitching about this penmanship medal, I'm like, who gives a fuck? Your fucking kid just died. <laughs> Candy, the final girl. Children can be nasty, don't you think? <laughs> and I'm Sean of the Dead. Swallow me a frog, but she's smart. <laughs> and tonight we're talking about the 1956 classic, The Bad Seed. We have Dave Gurman. Well, I'll be a middle-aged mongoloid from Memphis. <laughs> <laughs> and Erica Wright. Monica's been spread out on couches from New York to Los Angeles. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. <laughs> I have so much to say about this film. It was something uh, that I personally picked, so I'm just going to start us off. There's so much to say that I don't really know where to start, so I'm just going to start talking. Um, this film, you know, came out in 1956, and I think that that's pretty fucking landmark. we got to think this is four years before we would get Psycho from Alfred Hitchcock. You know, which is the ultimate psychological thriller horror with like a, ser- you know, a serial killer type. So, um, but this, this uh, got into production very quickly. If you think about it, the book, which was written by William March in 1954, immediately that year, they adapted it into a Broadway play, which ran for two years. And the cast of that almost exclusively did this film and it got them Oscar nominations. Patty McCormick, who plays, you know, Rhoda, and she does it really well. She was the first child to ever get nominated for an Oscar. And previous to that, they would do, like, juvenile Oscars, like uh, for, you know, Mickey Rooney, Judy Garland. They weren't considered into that category. It was more adults. But this was the first child, a 12-year-old, to get nominated for an Oscar. She did not win, but she, um, you know, Nancy Kelly, who played the, the mother, Christine, was also nominated for an Oscar. And, uh... I have some things to say about, you know, the complaints about this film, but we'll get to that. Uh, That was just my starter. And I had only seen this movie maybe about a month, month and a half ago was the first time. Um, Of course, you know, Candy has this uh, this thing for recommending these old black and white films. I was not much of the cinephile um, previous to doing this podcast. Like I, I watched you know, my horror movies and, and my sci-fi movies. And that was about it. But, you know, she's introduced me to some, some movies that I probably would have missed out. And this was definitely one of them. Um, and it, it took me by surprise because for that time period, 1956, I mean, it was some pretty risque shit going down. Um, and you know, all in all, I mean, enjoyable film. We, we turned around and watched it again last night, um, to get ready for this episode. And, uh, 
you know, just enjoyed it through and through. And you can tell, you know, definitely that that most of the, the actors in this were straight from the stage because they performed it just like they were on the stage. Uh, Dave. Yeah, well, just as uh, on a very high level, this is that great period in, in films, at least from my view, where like when films, when talkies first started, movies were basically just they filmed the stage production of the movie of the, of the play. And like, if you watch like a Bride of Frankenstein, it's a great example. If you watch the opening of Bride of Frankenstein, it's just a stage play that someone is filming with a camera. And then movies slowly transitioned. They got sort of the hang of it, how to make a movie different from a stage play. But this film, even for, ni- for 1956, it, it harkens back to that. It's very much a stage play that is filmed. And there's reasons for that we can get into a little later. But I just love that the way that they're projecting their voices and, and almost overacting is very much for the stage, very much selling it to the back row you know what i mean I, I lo- and i love that about this it's some of the performances are really um hammy in a wonderful way especially rhoda's especially when she gets mad and she pounds her little fists and and you know does the, the little angry face it's it's she's really selling it to the back row and i love it yeah um erica yeah so i'm i don't remember if i first saw this movie with my mom because we do like to watch older films on turner classic movies and similar stations or possibly it was in uh, one of Professor uh, Wheeler Winston Dixon's film classes that I took as an undergraduate. But uh, you know, at the time I was when I saw it, I was like, oh, I'm not as much into old movies. But taking his classes really gave me a huge appreciation for like golden age Hollywood films, silent films, the whole gamut of uh, movies that I really did grow up with. Um, so I that um, what's really fascinating about this movie and i have not read the book but i'm assuming the book as well is just how it's so spot on accurate with the behavior of psychopaths and um their their inability to feel empathy for people but i know we'll get into the psychology part a bit more later but uh watching this again it's like yeah you may as well just look at uh, dr robert Hare's psychopathy checklist and just tick off all these marks for little rhoda there because she fits it's <laughs> all of them except for the sexually promiscuous thing which would be you know if adult rhoda might be that way but <laughs> right <laughs> yeah i think all we needed to see was her like wiping her own feces on the wall <laughs> ready piggy piggy on the wall but see, she was so prim and proper she wouldn't even let herself oh, yeah. dirty so she was meticulous I mean, she was just uh-huh. cold-blooded. And and I wanted to touch on what Dave said about the overacting. That is the biggest complaint about this film, is that it's stagey, it's overacted. But like I said, this is pretty much the Broadway cast. I mean, they took this straight from Broadway. It was a hot property. It, and they they adapted the subject matter because, as we as we all know at this point, there was a different ending. The ending, actually, I like better um, they couldn't use because of the Hayes Code. The yeah. ending where, you know, she she drugs Rhoda and she goes to kill herself. The gun alerts everybody, but she successfully kills herself. The mother does, Christine. And Rhoda, they're able to save. And so that's a fucking creepier ending. Now, we got this uh, deus ex machina kind of ending where it's like, um, because of the Hayes Code, they can't let a criminal go unpunished. Um, and that was a big deal in the 50s. So, like, we got our only supernatural, if you want to call it that element, is maybe God striking you down with the lightning, if you want to go that way. But the the overacting and the staginess, like, well, yeah, when you act in a play and when you act in a movie, movies are much more subtle. But um, a play, 
especially if you're using the cast from the play, they're going to recreate their roles the way they're used to doing them, what they're comfortable with. And uh, I, I don't mind it because a lot of films up until the 50s, really, you know, even it was so long on the 50s, they they had to pound these scripts out so fast that they were they just took plays and here you go. And they just changed a little bit of stuff. But, you know, it was interesting that this movie got made at all because of the subject matter, because it was so shocking. The what they did, though, um, to comply what Warner Brothers <laughs> to comply with, like, you know, the Hays Code was put it as adults only can see this movie in theaters. But, you know, otherwise, I mean, like, you know, there really wasn't too, too much of a change. Like, they, she's a killer. They, they, and the mom figures out how many people she's killed and the dog she killed, which is also one of those signs, you know, hurting animals mm-hmm. that you see in children that are going to grow up and be sociopaths and psychopaths. And, I mean, um, Patty McCormick just, she's chilling in this, just frightening. She's so scary. And I always think it's scarier when the the humans are monsters, much more so than like some supernatural kind of shit. I mean, this is like, you know, child Norman Bates kind of shit. I mean, this is scary shit. Yeah. And, and, you know, to touch on what, what Candy was talking about with the ending, um, I, I would have, and and if I had any nitpicks about this, um, I have two and I'm just going to throw them out, um, just to get them, get them out. Um, first, the name Rhoda. <laughs> yeah. I know. We talked about that. If, we were watching it like, wow. If if I hear that name, her mom says that name, Rhoda, like, oh my God, the first 15, 20 minutes, like she just I'm like, oh my God, okay. We get it. We get it. Um, but but no, my biggest nitpick was probably the ending. And I know because of the Hayes Code and because of the time, they couldn't do it. But to me, the most chilling ending would have been in that hospital scene. Where the doctor, you know, tells the husband that, you know, the wife or or, the, or you assume I can't remember if the doctor told her, but you assumed that she had died from that self-inflicted gunshot wound and you find out that Rhoda lived. And if it would have just faded to black when you see her skipping down the hallway, you know what I'm saying? Like, like, oh, yeah, me, yeah, absolutely. That would have been clear to me. Right. That would have been the most chilling ending because what we got with that lightning strike at the end, I was like, eh, that was kind of, that was the, the cheap, easy way out. You know what I'm saying? Like, but she's so bad. God struck her down. Like, eh, come on. But that was the only way they could get the movie. No, I know. I get that. And I understand that because of the times and everything. But you know, that to me, that was my biggest gripe because I felt like, like that extra, what, 15, 20 minutes of film was kind of like, I don't know. Daniel. Yeah, it was like yeah. I could have I could have slept through it. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like like that's probably my biggest gripe. Yeah, uh, Dave. Right, right. The ending, the ending too. My my other gripe is you know here Rhoda um is obviously also very cunning and brilliant, and then she decides to go down to a big body of water during a lightning storm and stick a metal yeah. pole in it. You know, right. and I'm not. You know, it's like. Oh, yeah. Um, so yeah, you can see that you can see the meetings, you know, how can we get, all right, God will literally strike her dead. Okay, go do it. Film right. it. And that, you know, that's what they came up with. Um, but, um, the thing about, uh, Rhoda, um, visually that interested me is, um, I know in the book, I think she was a brunette, um, but I haven't read the book, but in the movie, she's so white and so golden, the blonde hair and they 
purposely made her paler. And she's wearing always, she's always wearing these pristine. In fact, her mother even says that she won't ever get her dresses dirty. She is so like white and it's just such a, uh, uh, such a um, statement to her nature, which is so dark. And I love that. I just love how like glowing she is. Even when they light her, she's almost glows and, 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 and it just belays her, her internal darkness. And yeah. I, just, I just love that. I was going to say something about that too. And it like, as she's revealed to be progressively more evil, her clothes get whiter and whiter. I yes. Yeah. And the way her bag, like even the way her bags are cut, this perfect ruler line of, of bang cut and her, her braids are always just perfect. It's just, it's it's yeah it's um off-putting it's because ridiculous. It's, right she's she doesn't miss a trick until she sticks the metal pole in the water during a lightning storm but that's <laughs> right <laughs> you know, we almost have to like i mean in my mind it's like we almost have to like just but even that ending for it's time 1956 you see a kid get struck by lightning you know it's like wow yeah, yeah i mean you don't you kind of see it through the trees but you do see the body splash into the water it's like wow you know they did it yeah, they did what they could, and so right. like, as much as I don't, I, I would prefer the actual ending that they use, you know, in the book and and in the play. Um, and they got away with a lot, and they brought up some things yeah. that nobody was talking about really at the time. So we've got the whole what has been argued about in psychology for they brought up the argument uh, directly nature versus nurture which is the, the mm-hmm. most hotly debated to this day um scenario in psychology is you know and we have christine asking about it like well can a child be evil and then you know the the father you know richard bravo and we, we know why he's arguing that no it has to it has to be environment mm-hmm. because yeah you christine, find out why yeah. because christine you know was clearly adopted by him she as she remembers um, you know, and that's an, an awesome, pretty, pretty much scene. Um, but, um, so she's asking about like, well, what about kids that come from good homes? I mean, like they can't be evil. Well, no, no, that, that argument doesn't hold, but you know, the other guy's like, no, no, no. There's this research that says even kids from good homes can just have like this genetic inherited bad seed sort of thing now that was sort of like a rough way of talking about nature versus nurture and that debate is still going on today um i have my opinions on it um having done some psych research on different levels but um you know i kind of like that it brought that up and in a clear discussion it wasn't veiled it was right there in your face about the psychology of can a child be evil are there traits? What's going on with that? And I think that that's really interesting for 1956. Like they got that into the movie, and I think that was important. And we get those chilling looks in Patty McCormick. Like she just chills me to the bone. Like she's smiling at her mother. Her mother hugs her, and her face just falls into this. Like, right. Oh, I love that. that that's, like that's it, cool it just show. like what fucking amazing talent. It's so scary. It's frightening. I wonder if the um, uh, makers of Dexter. I used to watch Dexter. And it's really the same. It's the same sort of uh, basic plot, right? He finds him in a in a not necessarily in a, in a murdered. I wonder if uh, they use this as an inspiration. I'd have to look that up. But it's it sounds like it now that we're talking about it. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a lot of uh, films and shows that were inspired by this kind of thing. The Good Son is one of them. Oh, um, yeah. 
you know, so there, there's a lot of stuff. Dexter, it makes sense because it was inherited. You know, that's the argument that they're making, the same argument that the bad seed has. Erica. Oh, I just wanted to mention that uh, the the film and I'm assuming like the novel and the play as well reflect um, psychological theory of the times. Uh, like there was a great book. I think I mentioned in our American Psycho episode, um, perhaps called The Mask of Sanity. Mm -hmm. um, I remember. That was first published, I think, in 1941. Uh, but he was one of the first uh, psychologists to uh, conduct interviews and uh, intensive research on uh, institutionalized psychopaths. And a lot of these people uh, were, like, perfectly charming, blended in with everyone else in their daily life and got ahead and got away with stuff for a long time before eventually they got caught doing something terrible and ended up in prison or in a mental hospital uh, permanently in some cases. But uh, now I think the leading researcher in this field is probably Dr. Robert Hare, who developed the psychopathy checklist. And uh, that's used to... Um, frequently for like uh, prison populations and it's uh, a good determinant for parole hearings as to whether someone's going to reoffend or not. But some of the checklist items, uh, uh, glib and superficial, someone who's witty, articulate, entertaining, likable, and charming, egocentric and grandiose. Like they are, the, see themselves as the center of the universe. They have an ungodly sense of self-worth and importance entitled to live by their own rules. So this is like paraphrased from a book called the psychopaths Bible, which um, is pretty entertaining. Lack of remorse or guilt, no concept of what your actions do to others. Whatever happens is never your fault. Lack of empathy, what they got what was coming to them. Um, deceitful, manipulative, uh, shallow emotions, cold and unfazed confusions as to what a regular person displays at an appropriate moment. And there's a lot of that in this film when uh, that boy's body's first discovered and uh, Rhoda's mom is asking her, well, did you see him when he was pulled from the water? And Rhoda's like, oh, yeah, it was exciting. Yeah. It's like, well, like a big red flag right there. Yeah. <laughs> well, I just got to say, you're reading off all those traits about psychopaths. You just described our cats. <laughs> <laughs> Timmy, don't listen. You're perfect. <laughs> She's going to go get a knife now. Oh, shit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, it's just, there's so much, there's, I love the, the, the tension building this because you're really, although like Rhoda obviously is the center of this story, we're really focused on more of Christine, the mother. And, and like, okay, so as, as a mother, she's trying to, is my kid a fucking killer? Is my kid a psychopath? Like, what is going on with my child? Because even at the beginning, she's sort of like questioning, you know, Miss Fern, the teacher. Like, does she get along with the other kids? Um, do they like her? Because she's worried. She knows something is off about her child. And and so from the from the get go, we know that she's concerned. Like something's up. But then we we go through her emotions of denial. We go through her emotions of, you know, then protecting and then. You know, like, okay, I love my child, but my child's going to kill again. So what can I do? I can kill her and <clears> save her. And then and, and so it's to the point, you know, where she's kind of gone off the rails is her fucking kid. And then also her mom was that notable serial killer that the the father adopts her. You know, but it's like he and the father's just like, oh, no, 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 you're perfect. And she's like, oh, but am I, though? Am I really? 
So, I mean, we have a couple different journeys we go on and through this film. That's what I like. It's like the, all every character is necessary and interesting for whatever reason. Yeah, and if I if I had to if I had to pick one person in this film for me personally that stood out, it was uh, Henry Jones, uh, Leroy, the handyman. Yeah. Oh, I love um, him. He his performance for me personally was top notch, and and just the the accent and you know like he's just like this kind of like this dumb you know caretaker that. You know, but he's also he also sees through Rose. He's the one person, yeah. And yeah, yeah, he's 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 the one person. And the guy, I mean, he had a marvelous career. He was a great character actor. Um, He did three ten to Yuma. Um, He did. uh, He was the coroner in Vertigo. Um, And then later on, I mean, he did a lot of TV, a lot of TV, did a lot of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, Night Gallery, Twilight Zone. Oh, I love Night Gallery. Um, Yeah, he was in Arachnophobia. Right, Arachnophobia, Dick Tracy, um, uh, what was it, The Grifters. Uh, I mean, he just, you know, he he had an amazing career, and I think he passed away in 1999. But, you know, his performance in this was just, that was, for me, any any scene with with him in it, I, I really enjoyed that. Well, he thinks he his, his uh, mistake is he thinks he's her equal he, because he's also obviously a psychopath and he even admits it. He admits it. I, he says he even admits that he plays dumb so he can watch other people and he listens to everything he says. But he and he thinks so. He thinks that he's her equal and he's not because he's not as cold blooded as she is. He's not willing to take that next step that she is willing to take, which uh, is his ultimate downfall in a really horrible way, even uh that scene where you don't even see um, him burning his death, but you hear it. And I was, I was paying attention to his specifically his screams during that scene. They're horrifying. Yeah. They're horrifying. The power of the off screen death of what you don't see. And you're imagine, and you know, he's on fire. So you're imagining this poor guy. Oh, that poor guy. And Christine watching it. And you see their eyes move as he's running when they finally get him out. That, that scene is horrible, but the, uh, the other interesting character to me, sort of the polar opposite of Leroy, is Monica. She's this, um, you know, uh, she thinks very highly of her intellect and her education, and she's a, an amateur, um, you know, a, I don't know what, to, a crime detective or um, yeah. criminal criminal psychologist, I guess. And and she doesn't see what's right in front of her nose right. because because it's a little girl. Mm-hmm. So you've got Leroy who sees through uh, Rhoda, you know, immediately, completely. You've got Monica who sees who claims to know all about the criminal mind and sees nothing about what's directly in front of her. And even, and we find out that Rhoda is planning her death. She's going to be next for the bird. She wants that bird. She's like, how long do bird dude love birds live? You know, oh, she's doing the math in her head. Dad's just like, Oh honey, I you know, he has no idea. She's planning Monica's death next to get the birds and Monica just doesn't see it. That's why the ending in the film would have been so much better if she had lived because then they could have had some great scene with her holding Monica's hand, walking out of the hospital. You know, so about those birds, you know, yeah, so what do you, right. what do you, yeah. what do you feed them? We want to go ice skating. It had like some phenomenal endings. The ending's really my only gripe. Um, but I wanted to bring up the performance of Eileen Haggard, who played Mrs. Daigle. Yeah. I love her in this. I love her in this. Really great. And she also saw through, you know, but, you know, she was 
she's like, you know, I'm drunk and it's a pleasure to be drunk when your your boy's dead or whatever. But she played drunk really well, but she was also smart. And she's like, I know that she knows something. And that last and, and then like she shows up a second time and I was like, I'm not supposed to be here, but I'm here anyway. Pour me a drink, you know. <laughs> like I just wanted to see your little road. I didn't you know, and then she sees Rhoda and she's like, You're the last person to see Claude alive and you know that he got the penmanship medal because you know, you weren't as good as him, right? And then yeah. kind of like you see Rhoda's face like, oh, fuck. And like this <laughs> put me down. So, but, you know, Monica comes to the rescue like, oh, no, don't do that to Rhoda. And it's like, she's great. And it, I love the parting scene that we have with her. And, and it's just Christine. Christine's being like crying because she's she knows at this point Rhoda's admitted to her that how many murders she's done at that point. Um, You know, and. And she's like, Christine, you know something and you're not telling me. And she hugs her like, I understand. Because, like, that almost like losing <laughs> her child. She, you know, technically, Christine lost her child already, you know, because she's not mm-hmm. this cold blooded fucking killer. So they, she hugs her and they're both crying together. And then she just rips apart and leaves. I'm like, I love that scene. No. I love it. Mm-hmm. And it, you know, and it, and it brings about the question too, like, you know, as a parent, like, how far are you willing to go? to save your kid you know you know what your kid's done and you know i know that she's having like this internal like you know fight about like how to handle this but then it's like throw the shoes in the incinerator like now you're gonna now you now you've become an accomplice now you've now you're you're hiding the fact that your daughter's murdered people and you can see that she can't handle the guilt right yeah rhoda has no No, remorse no shame she's gonna kill again and christine's like oh i can't stand it you know yeah i mean you would it would eat you alive i mean any normal person person, you know it would eat you alive and that's something you know it takes me back to when i was in in college uh i majored in criminal justice and something that one of my criminology professors posed to us was, you know, it was about capital punishment and the death penalty. And they asked, you know, if that was your own child and you were tasked with, you know, say throwing the switch, would you be able to do it? You know, and it's like, fuck no, like, absolutely not. Like, that's, mm-hmm. there's no way I could do that. Yeah. You know, I mean, because your kid, you're going to love them no matter what. Even even if they go, you're not going to agree with what they do. You're going to disprove of, you know, of it. You sign up for that. Right. You yeah. That. And and yeah, there's there's absolutely no way. Um would I become an accomplice? Um <laughs> depends. Yeah. I please is your money is your money involved? Uh, right. You know, yeah, yeah. Let's talk. <laughs> What's my split? Seeing <laughs> <laughs> her, you know, emoting and Christine emoting and, and feeling all this guilt. She's taking on the guilt that Rhoda should have. And by becoming an accomplice, she saves her the only way she can think from by killing her and then killing herself because she can't stand the fact that she just killed she's killing her kid you know like we got so much conscience there so like this bad seed skips generation mm-hmm. yeah like uh, maybe it's a recessive gene or something like that right if you if you are in favor of the nature thing mm-hmm. now right i'm split down the middle on nature versus nurture i don't have a solid answer for me i think both factors are, are a real thing um but this kind of begs the question that is more nature. This is definitely the, the mm-hmm. message that this is nature. And I think that's pretty remarkable for the time, honestly. But um, Dave, go ahead. The, the thing about uh, the mom in this, um, 
is that nature versus the, the debate of nature versus nurture for her, it gives her no respite because either way she's at fault. If it's especially once, especially once, you know, dad finally admits it. Yes, you're the daughter of a serial killer. So, you know, it doesn't matter if it's nature. It's because she got my genetics. If it's nurture, it's because I'm a shitty mom. She gets no she gets no relief on either side of that argument, which is, you know, it makes her even more tragic. But I wanted to before we moved on that we were talking about the scene where the um, the mother, with the, the Daigle woman comes over and she's drunk and despondent over the loss of her son. And and they offer her a drink. And then, you know, and then she comes out, she wheels out the booze cart, you know, yeah. I just love that she's, and she just grabs the bottle. She's like, yeah, I'd like what scotch and water. And then she just grabs the bottle of scotch. So I guess no water then she just pours it in a glass. And I just love wheeling out of the booze cart for the obvious distraught drunk she's mom. She's like, ain't we swank? Yeah. yeah. All the class-based jibes she makes. (laughs) Which is interesting. I'd have to do, was that really a thing in 1956? Was was it more class-based? Like in today's society, as far as I'm, as far as in in my experience, there is none of that. Like you're from a higher, I mean, maybe really, really rich people look down on us. Classes tone still exists, but um, was it more pronounced then? They've always existed because if we go away from psychology and go into sociology, yeah, there is a hierarchy. Yeah. And so, yeah, yeah. I, think it's, I think it was very topical. I think what does she keep saying? Topical. You're a superior. She says you're a superior, you're a superior person. person. Yeah, which is a strange word. I wouldn't think, yeah. but I guess, you well, know. I mean, a, but you know, she says it kind of tongue in cheek. 65 years ago. Yeah, like she's saying it like, oh, you're better than me, aren't you? Because you have money and social obligations. But my Social obligations, yeah. She, hit, she hits on that point. She hits, And she talks about how her daughter has social obligations even at that age even at eight <laughs> to be so fancy I'll to have social obligations interview with her you know like yeah she's, yeah she's really tongue-in-cheek you know barbs out you know because she knows she knows that this girl did something and that's why the whole children can be nasty don't you think yeah like she's on to her she's on to her yeah i mean they wrote her name on the privy fence so hortense yeah <laughs> yeah it's another another horrible first name yeah, yeah, Hortense. Hortense and Rhoda. Like, what the fuck? Rhoda from Rhododendron. You know, if you're going to name your kid after a plant, you're going to name right, it after yeah. a Rhoda. It could be Daisy or, you know, Rose. Or, exactly, Rose. <laughs> you know, stinkweed. Yeah. Hey, stinkweed, come here. Ragweed. <laughs> Give me a beer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the classes tones are there. I think it's really great that you touched upon that. Um you know, I think that that also feeds into her conversation. Like, well, if a child is raised in a good home, they're not they're not going to have these tendencies. Good effects. home. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, like, she, her and the husband are clearly in love, and they clearly love their daughter, and they are obviously well off. Yeah. Um. But he's absent. He's an absent father. Yeah. Right. Yes, and has no clue what's going on. No clue. Yeah. Everything's and fine. You brought up a really good point, Dave, with the the uh likeness to dexter because it is very similar especially when when the father or or her father shows up um wrote his grandfather and you find out that you know her mother was you know the the child of this murderer that he took and raised as his own because it's the same thing that happened in dexter Yes. You know, the the Dexter's father was a detective that happened to find Dexter covered in blood as a baby. Yeah, literally covered in blood, yeah. And and yeah. took him and raised him as his own. You know, and, and and it's 
the same fucking thing, you know? So, yeah, I would imagine they probably did pull from this. Yeah, I imagine so. I, I don't know for, for a fact, but I imagine so. Yeah, I mean, it's. I think it's just you see its influence in later works. Yeah. Because it's such an interesting story, and because it deals with some things that are always going to be topical. Yeah, and to, and to touch on that influence, like, you know, this was covered in a myriad of different shows. Uh, South Park did a couple episodes uh, about the bad seed. Um, Mr. Belvedere, if you remember that show, Fuck, I uh, actually, actually had a character named Rhoda and referenced this film. And um, I know the shout out to Rob, who couldn't be here tonight. One of our favorite films, Deadly Friend uh, by the late <laughs> Wes Craven. Uh, this yeah. this is one of the characters was watching this film in that movie. You know, so, I mean, and it's it's been, you know, I think in Problem Child 2, it was it was referenced as well. So, I mean, it's you know, it's it's made its rounds through a lot of, you know, different films. Yeah. Um. Wait, hold on, you're in a minute, Erica. Wait, what have you got? Oh, what have I got? Oh, she's now. I don't really. <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> the forgetsies. Pressure. Yeah. yeah, you can always just skip me and come back to me. I'll write down notes as I think of stuff to say. But yeah, I'm all here for the psychology part of it and criminal. Yeah, well, that's what I like to hear. Yeah. Um. I uh. I, I love the psycho. Like I said, you know, we really didn't start delving more into psychology. Really, the standout for that, as far as classic films, would be what we've already covered, Psycho. Um, but speaking of Psycho, did you know Alfred Hitchcock turned down directing this movie? Yeah, I read that. I wonder why he turned it. Do you know any reasons why he turned it down? I do not know the reasons, but, you know, Hitchcock... I love them, because it seems perfect for him. ...specific ideas um, as to what they wanted to do, and Hitchcock, I probably, knowing Hitchcock how he was probably wanted to do his own thing with it and they didn't want to do that I, I just have a feeling that that's what it is knowing how Hitchcock's career was and how, what a ass he was you know yeah because, you know what it was it was probably because the uh, star was a minor and he knew he couldn't be completely shitty to her like he could to like right. Tip right? well I can't really abuse her because of child labor laws shit I ain't doing it yeah <laughs> uh, yeah Hitchcock was a piece of shit but make good movies we but there's I was looking up artist. Yeah, I was looking up lists of movies with a similar theme, and there's one I wanted to bring up real quick because I think you've all seen it. We need to talk about Kevin from 2011. Ah, yes. Yeah, I yeah. Thought, I thought that might, I thought that I might stimulate, that might stimulate some conversation because wow, is that a movie so similar? Uh, except that the mother in that one, in the 2011 film, is she's such, she's a victim of her. She's such a victim too. You know, with the talks about how the, the neighbors treat her. So, but anyway, I thought that was a great film, sort of modern adaptation of this. I've been meaning to watch that, so I will actually. Oh, you haven't seen it? Oh my God, it's, I haven't it seen is. It is the, yet, but I do know what it's out. So I was. Don't very take curious. don't take antidepressants before you watch it because you <laughs> will. <laughs> it will put you over the edge. Three times a day, like, like that's all I can do. <laughs> that movie is so fucking dark. Yeah, I haven't what seen I it. Heard. Good one. And another one of my favorites, which first seems like it's very much a bad seed kind of film, but it has such a twist, is Orphan. I, I was going to mention it, yeah. That. Yeah, I don't want to spoil that ending here because I didn't see that coming. It's like, oh, holy shit, this is not what I thought it was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I thought, I, not to spoil the two, but I thought the ending was a little bit too far fetched. It overreached, I thought, just a little bit. You know, it's like, ah, I'm not buying that. Uh, we got a request to do it on the show, so I'm going to work. Yeah, okay, well, okay. 
in a work. Yeah, <laughs> but but I, I definitely did see some differences, but some similarities between the two. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there's another one I want. Has anyone ever seen 1972's The Other with Uta Hagen? This is a really obscure film. I can't. If no one's seen it, then it's not going to make any sense. But seek it in 1972. The other. It's it's these twin brothers, um, who and where the one brother is the good son and the other one is the bad seed, and he does horrible things and the other brother covers for him and it's. But then the ending, you find out this huge twist. Anyway, such such a creepy I, film I that made. Seek that out. That sounds interesting. It's absolutely amazing, and it's like it's got the great, like I said, it's got the great Uta Hagen, who was a great um, acting. Uh, coach. I mean, she was up there with Lee Strasberg. She she taught acting. She was one of the great acting teachers of all time, and she pl- plays the grandmother. And she's the one who sees the evil in these kids, but still loves them, where like everyone else is fooled by them. And it, it's got a lot of the same themes. I would definitely seek it out. I think it's a fantastic... I remember watching it on TV when I was a little <laughs> kid, and it's just scared the piss out of me. <laughs> I mean, even the ending. Anyway, and and also, um, it's alive. I, I, for some reason, I wrote down it's alive. 1974 is it's alive. We need to because we need to talk about the, the the central fear of this movie is parenting. Parenting, you know, it, it, the one word that sums up parenting for me is guilt. Am I did I do enough? Did I pass along my shitty genes, or was it my upbringing? I suck. And uh, it's alive touches on that too. Like the kid is obviously a monster in every sense of the word, and let and yet the parents still love it. Yeah. I mean, it kills everyone in the delivery room, and the parents <laughs> still love it. <laughs> it's their child. Yeah. And it's it's so campy and wonderful and over the top. It's been a minute since I've seen that one, but yeah. <laughs> so I. Well, I did I did want to mention that like, oh, at no. the beginning, the first time I saw this film, um, she had uh, you know this big issue about the fucking penmanship medal. Right. And it was like, where's his penmanship medal? And I'm like, bitch, your son just died. Who gives a fuck about the medal? Right. But I I, eventually I understood that was just like the link to to the it was like the thread. You, You know, you pull on the thread and and get to the get to the meat of the story. And that was like that. That was the thread. But when she first started mentioning, like, where is his penmanship medal? I'm like. Your fucking kid just died. Who gives a fuck about the metal? But yeah, but it does make sense because, you know, like she said, I pinned it on himself. It can't come off unless you yeah. physically unlock the thing and take it off. So that's why she was bringing it up because she's like, there's no way it fucking fell off. Yeah. There is she knows that Rhoda wanted it. Yeah, yeah. doesn't she? Right. Hadn't, hadn't she mentioned that Rhoda had already had a tantrum about it earlier on? So she knew that Rhoda coveted the metal. Yeah, I mean that's that's where we start in this story. Yeah, it, it's talking about that, and you know, um, and and the penmanship medal ends, ends up becoming like a huge deal. That's and the reason she dies at the end. Yeah, she's looking for that penmanship medal. She wanted that fucking medal, but you know, much like a serial killer <laughs> that, that likes to keep like a little trinket or a token right. from yeah. their victims. That that's what her treasure chest really was, because we it, you know it's touched on later by the mom when she knows. For sure that Rhoda has done these murders and she finally accepts that. She's like, what about that glass ball with the fish in it? You wanted it from our old neighbor in Wichita and now it's sitting on top of your treasure chest. So what happened? You know, so it's really the penitent metal is a really big link. And it's definitely I mean, it seems silly at first, but then you're like, wow, this is really the key. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and as the movie progressed, like then it all made sense. But at the time when she when they were bitching about this penmanship medal, I'm like, 
who gives a fuck? Your fucking kid just died. Like, yeah. you know what I'm saying? Like, if my kid died, the last thing I would worry about is some fucking, you know, random ribbon or award she got. <laughs> died under mysterious circumstances that okay and and that makes sense and it and it and it did make sense but at the time you know what i'm just gonna shut the fuck up <laughs> no no i'm just saying like i mean I it just, makes sense in my head i understand <laughs> it does i mean because at first yeah you are kind of like what's the big fucking deal but yeah it, it really is the key to unlocking everything mm-hmm. and it, it it it's a theme throughout the film this fucking penmanship metal really resonates throughout the entire film well yeah and his mom also and his mom also harps just the the penmanship metal and the fact that he had bruises on his wrists right and the and the the, yeah so shape on his head in her in her in her drunken stupor uh grief she's noticing these little details that don't make sense yeah and and might not and and, yeah go ahead erica I'm just going to say that that whole scene where Rhoda confesses killing that, that kid to her mom finally. And at first it sounds like, oh, maybe she has impulse control problems. Maybe it's a crime of passion because it's like she got mad because he wouldn't give her the medal. And so she you know, beats him with her shoe. But then when it, when he comes back up and he's grabbing the edge of the dock with his hands and then she smashes his hands with the, the heels because he's going to tell on her. It's like, oh, yeah, that's totally like cold and calculating and premeditated. <laughs> yeah, we've gone beyond impulsive. We've gone straight yeah. to... <laughs> and, like, the strange reaction after the death, like, I don't feel anything at all about it. Right. Yeah, yeah she says, she says he, he drowned, I didn't, you know, or something like right. that. Right. Yeah, right. She right. Just say that with a sandwich, yeah, like, bye. Yeah, and I think the most horrifying thing about it is that she's fucking eight years old. Yeah. You know, like like imagine like trying to imagine any of my kids when they were eight <laughs> doing something like this. And, and and her career had been going on for a while, clearly, probably maybe two years back when she killed the dog, when she killed uh the, the neighbor for the snow globe. She's killing people and keeping her trinkets like any serial killer would, because they always go back to the scene of crime and they always you know, almost always they but they usually have a trinket that they keep some yeah. some kind of like. To mark the memory. Yeah, I mean, I think about the worst thing that that like our son, who's you know he's the youngest, so it's the most recent eight year old I can I can think of. Yeah. The worst thing he did was you know he shit in a bucket and put it in his closet. <laughs> <laughs> you have to. We'll have to fill you in on well, that. Well, who hasn't? Who hasn't? Who hasn't? You know. <laughs> I, I, half an hour ago, I was just. Or or you know the time that he <laughs> farted on the soap that I washed my and face with. <laughs> Let me just, I'll just tell the story. It's quick. Yes, please. So, I was talking, laughing. I leave. So, so we, you know, we tuck him in at night and not anymore, but, I mean, but back in the day. And not anymore. Not anymore. Well, not we, since that. We can barely get him to come out of his bedroom now. So <laughs> oh, it's a whole other conversation. <laughs> right. Right. So, so we, I go in to tuck him in and I'm the first one in. No one else has come in the room yet. And I, I smell I smell something. And I'm like, what the hell is that smell? And I open his closet and it hit me. And so I gotta tell you, my first thought was like, okay, maybe he had like a glass of milk and like put it in his closet. Because I mean it smell it was just nasty. It was a nasty rotten smell. And so I'm like, so 
So I turn the light on and I start looking and there is like this Tupperware like container, container, like a storage container almost. And like he would keep his Legos and stuff in it. And I like, I like pick it up and it's just this massive turd. (laughs) Just this solid massive turd in this container. Like, and I look at him and I'm like, what the hell is this? And he like gets all, you know, upset and, you know, he knows he's done wrong. And he tells me this story. Okay. So at this <laughs> at this time when he's eight years old, he's like going through this phase where he is like scared shitless of bugs, right? Any bug. And <laughs> we were living in like an old Victorian we have house. This, we have this old hundred year old Victorian house and we had two bathrooms. And it was a, a full bathroom upstairs right across the hall from his room and a half bath downstairs. So at one point he had seen a mosquito in the half bath downstairs. So that was that bathroom was off limits. He could never go into that bathroom again because he one time he saw a fucking mosquito in there. So at the time he has to shit really bad and his sister's taking a shower in, in the upstairs bathroom and he can't go in the downstairs bathroom because he saw that mosquito probably two years pr- prior to that. <laughs> so he just does what everybody else would do and pulls the nearest, you know, Tupperware receptacle, receptacle <laughs> and drops a deuce in it and just stuffs it right back into his closet. Mm-hmm. Leaves it for you know for me to find, and I, we yeah. laughed about that. So hard. He was he was crying. He was in tears because he was so embarrassed. And Candy and I were like crumpled on his bed, like laughing. And he's like, stop laughing uncontrollably. Like it was just funny, but like he's not a serial killer, of course. Yeah, he wasn't like smearing it on the walls or anything. He just he just who who here has not had to take a take a dump and not had an opportunity to make it to a bathroom? Oh, it's a bad feeling. And so. Yeah. I'm yeah, gonna plead the fifth on that. But... <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk later. Yeah. Yeah. We'll, so we'll, Sean, we'll put that on Patreon. Oh yeah, absolutely. Behind the scenes, but at least now you've got the story to tell at his uh, wedding when they asked you to give the speech. You've got a story to tell at his wedding. Oh yeah. my god. I can't wait. I can't. Yeah, wait. it's gonna be great. Yeah, film it. Definitely film it. Yeah. He's gonna, <laughs> he's gonna hate us. But um, yeah. So. Wow. Anyway, speaking of bad seeds. <laughs> <laughs> what, are you, what, are you eating he's raspberries? What the fuck is in this? Kid. He, it was just, you know, fear. He's got anxiety from his mom. Speaking of n- nature, um, I passed down my anxiety disorders to my children because it runs in my family. That is a fact. Um, but, you know, um, you know, the nurture can factor in with nature. And make a situation worse where, like, in my case, um, I was predisposed to have anxiety, but then I had some trauma, so a couple, some tra- traumatic events in my life, and that gave me PTSD. So that made for one nasty cocktail in me. So I already had the nature. I don't think it would have been as bad if the nurture had been better. <laughs> but mine was a combo, and my, my therapist backs this up. I mean, it really was. Uh, Erica. Oh, yeah. Um, I remember what I was going to say earlier before my brain just lost it um, on that that's nature versus nurture topic. There have been uh, brain function scans of people who score high on the psychopathy checklist and their their brain activity is different from that of normal people. 
So there's yeah. definitely a biological component. They haven't isolated, you know, like a psychopathy gene or anything, but like obviously there's stuff going on that you can't just, you know, always say, oh, this person was raised badly or that it was all environment. Like I, I totally think it's a combination of factors. I do too. Probably is probably is a genetic predisposition for it as well. Uh, yeah, I found that that pretty fascinating. Yeah, like when they bring up in in the movie, he's like, it's like they're born blind, and uh-huh. it's hard to teach them to see, but they can never see because they're blind. Yeah, they used to be called moral imbeciles. Like they could be intelligent in like the traditional sense, but when it came to moral issues, like are you know, empathy for other people, just not a clue. So that was like an old-fashioned term before terms like psychopath or sociopath were used. Right, right. Um, I just think there there's so many interesting things, you know, and I, I hope this brought to light, you know, people um, more looking into um, psychology. Because um, we had, you know, Monica, who, who every role in this mattered, even if it was a small role. And so that's how you can tell it was done for the stage, because sometimes in movies we have small roles that don't mean dick. But every role means something. And so Monica is a sort of amateur criminologist, psychologist type stuff, and she's throwing her stuff out. And and actually, she does help figure out, you know, because she's like, word association. But she smacks the shit out of Christine right. for that, too. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not going to point that out. She's like, hey, Christine, what do you think? Um, you know, what do you think from those words? She's like, I'm still thinking about my father, like how I think I don't belong. And she's like, well, the changeling, you know, thing like, you know, she just knows all this stuff, but it does trigger a thing in Christine. Like maybe those dreams mean something. Maybe I really am adopted and it sticks with her. And that's such an important part of the story. When we do find out who her mother is, because they've already talked about her and her exploits, you know, Bessie Danker, um, all of her exploits and, and 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 the murders she did and and what he what they say is you know uh, what he, Richard Baba says is that enchanting smile mm-hmm. and you know then when um somebody says it to Christine later uh, no he says it he's like but you had such an enchanting smile you were this little two year old with an enchanting smile she's like oh my fucking god yeah he just panics and you see it and then she's like and and then you know he goes and looks at you know, Rhoda, and she has that enchanting smile, and, you know, the mother was known, that's why she never got convicted of anything, because she had an enchanting smile. She, you know, so Christine's seeing the, the link that she is, so maybe she's not guilty, you know, she feel, she takes on all the guilt for her mother, who was never technically caught, and for her daughter, who she's trying to prevent getting caught. You know, she takes on all that guilt, and it just destroys her, you know? Um, I just I think that's really important. But when they say that enchanting smile, it's something normally you want to hear. But it's a word. It's like a phrase of terror. Yeah, here definitely Mm -hmm. triggers something. And and I you know, I wanted to point out that whole thing with with Monica and and Tasker and all them when when they're sitting around talking about, you know, (coughs) the true crime stuff. You know, I mean, you see that a lot nowadays. I mean, there's there is a huge true crime fascination. I'm one of them, you know. Um, you have your podcasts and, and you have your, you know, your blogs and your forums where, you know, these internet sleuths, like they will get together and try to solve cold cases, you know, and stuff like that. And, you know, it's, it's, it's fascinating. And, you know, and that's what I see, you know, in this group is, is they're fascinated with this stuff. And I thought it was interesting when Monica's bringing all of this stuff up and you can tell that the mother is just like, she she has she's not interested in it. She wants nothing to do with it. But how ironic that she is like mm-hmm. right in the fucking middle of it. 
you yeah, know that's denial i mean my right. mom's on to something what's your word association with this how do you feel about this and and so monica you know kind of brings that to the forward and uh, you know the forefront here and i think that's really really important so monica actually knew what she was talking about right yeah but yeah she was completely fooled by rhoda yeah unlike leroy with his stick bloodhound <laughs> yeah that's <laughs> <laughs> uh, dave well, just I just just Monica is so interesting to me because I think she represents sort of the hubris of maybe not education, but like over overestimating your own knowledge. She she knows she thinks she knows she even describes herself as an amateur criminologist or, or a criminal psychologist. And she can't mm-hmm. see the child right in front of her that's planning her own demise for the birds. But she's so um, willing to, like, analyze everybody else and and and. And she even has some weird psychopathy on her own. She talks about her husband's name, like Breedlove, you know, right? Wasn't her first, her husband's name Breedlove? And she talks about, she's like, and she breed. Well, we won't even talk about that. So what does that mean? She's got, you know, sexual repression. And then she even admits uh, uh, some sort of incestuous attraction to her brother, who was a latent homosexual. She's got some, you know, shit going on in her backstory, too. And yet she's all, you know, willing to judge everybody else, but not look internally. Yeah. Isn't that true for people? Right, and homosexuality yeah, in the 50s. Oh, my God. Yeah, we don't talk about homosexuality in the 50s, you know? Yeah, this movie was pretty, like, edgy, you know, for the time period. Like, they got away with a lot of things uh, in spite of the Hayes Code. Exactly. <laughs> so, like, so, they got a couple dirty interesting. jokes in there. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, the breed love thing made me crack up. But it's also like it's okay with me because we got the rest of the movie, which I thought was fucking brilliant. It was edgy, it was different, and it was shocking. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I was gonna mention that 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 scene uh, early in the film, and it's before um, the boys murdered. But uh, Rhoda's mom knows something is off with her daughter. Like she's asking the teacher how she's, you know, how Rhoda's getting along at school. Is she fitting in with other kids and saying, well, sometimes I think she's like a little too grown up. So it's like she intuitively knows something's off there even before, uh, you know, there's this kind of clear cut motive to uh, to kill this boy <laughs> for this yeah. um, metal. <laughs> yeah, you get like these little hints and like these little foreshadows. Mm-hmm. You know, they're very subtle. Yeah, but subtlety was the name of the game, really, because we're, we're dancing around one of the strictest codes in Hollywood, but they pulled it off. And, you know, they did have to put on the branding, like I said, but I, didn't, I think they got away with a lot of shit that maybe flew over the heads or under the radar. But this this movie was a box office success. It got a bunch of Oscar nominations, uh, got a bunch of Golden Globe nominations. Um, like I said, Patty McCormick uh, has the record of being the very first child actor to get nominated for an Oscar. So, like, she was fucking great. But unfortunately, her career didn't go so great after that. Interestingly, she's apparently in the um, 2018 remake of The Bad Seed. Um, yeah, she plays a doctor. A, a psychologist or, yeah, a doctor or something like that, which is kind of a cool thing. I, I still not seen the remake and did not have time for it today. But yeah, apparently avoid the 1980s remake at all costs. It's terrible. yeah. <laughs> they changed things that I don't know why they changed them. I I don't get it. Like why would you do that? Okay, the 80s. And uh, and the director, uh, Mervyn Leroy, was the co-director on the Wizard of Oz. Mm-hmm. 
I just I didn't know that. I just found that out. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, we have some, you know, seasoned vets doing the stuff, you know, writing stuff and uh, directing. And we just had, uh, you know, phenomenal actors. I mean, they say they're shooting the scenery, a little hammy, but that's how you have to play on a stage because, like Dave said, you're playing to the back row. And, you know, all of my acting experience is from the stage. So I tend to do that when I'm trying to act. You know, I'm very busy with my my body language and, you know, loud to project my voice and things like that. So, I mean, that's the, that's the biggest gripe that I've seen in most reviews is that it's too handy, stagey. I'm like, they just got off a two-year fucking run of this that was a yeah. fucking runaway success. Like, and, and they use almost exclusively the cast from the Broadway play. Like, what did you think was going to happen? And they blamed it on the director, and it's like, no, I think it was the right way. I think it was done well. There are a couple moments, like with Christine, where you could tell that it was stagey, like, where she's like, what am I going to do? Like, pound her fist, sort of like Rhoda does. And she's like, so I hit him again and again, you know? Like, yeah, I mean, yeah, but that's there, but it does convey emotion. Um, I mean, and but they were, they they both got nominated for Academy Awards, so what are you, you going to do? Can't argue with that. And this is, uh, you know, people call this like a, a thriller, but I think it's psychological horror. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely. Horror. It is a horror movie. Like the monster is a human, which is, is scarier, always scarier to me because I'm like Christine. I can't handle true crime. Right. I can't. I can't stand it. Um, you know. Yeah, particularly a, a human child. Issue with me. Maybe I'm a foundling. I don't know. Well, I mean, it, I think this. I think this film falls into the same debate. With like, you know, is Silence of the Lambs a horror film or a thriller? You know what I'm saying? The embraces it so. Yeah, yeah, this is definitely, it's chilling. It's chilling as fuck. It's creepy. Uh, And so we were talking about how this film sort of was ahead of its time or in an early forerunner of, you know, talking about some advanced subjects that weren't talked about back then. When you look at, uh, read the history of the, the, the motion picture production code, which came into effect, I think, in 1934, that was back when the, the studios, I can't remember how many studios there were, but the big four or five film studios controlled everything. Yes. They, they controlled, and they even sought to dictate morality, what could be shown on the screen, because the only place you could see these things was to go to a movie theater. So they controlled everything, distribution, they, and they could dictate morality, but as time went on, and this movie is an interesting example because it's sort of at that uh, bellwether time between um, when television was first starting out and you had other options to see stuff. And that's why it eventually ended because there was money to be made showing people what they wanted to see, even if it was considered immoral. And that, so this movie comes at an interesting time, sort of that, that, that bubble time between the, the end of the power of the studio system, to, uh, ability to dictate morality. You know, and even in this film, we, we noticed when we were watching it that they, um, in the bedroom, that they have twin beds. Yes. Yeah, which is, you know, ridiculous in every sense. When, you know, I Love Lucy and I don't know what other uh, TV Mary shows. Mary Tyler have. Moore show. And- they had twin beds. I mean, I could wreck a twin bed. Uh, <laughs> and so it's, it's just an interesting time when the studios were losing their ability to dictate morality, which always annoys me when people in power think they can dictate morality, but that's a whole other conversation. Well, but. you see, you see how that worked out. Yeah. <laughs> and and they don't stop people. They will rebel. And yet they don't stop trying. They keep trying. You, you got to give them credit for persistence. Because people are always going to fight back. They're going to be like, nah, you can't tell me what to fucking do. 
I mean, it's in our nature to be rebellious. Yeah, I mean, you see it now with the masks and the vaccines and all that okay. stuff. I mean, you're like, you can't make me. Yeah. So, I mean, if you push on anything, people are going to rebel. So that's, you know, something that you also take to your parenting. You know, if you're a parent, like, okay, how hard do I want to push on this? Because I know my kid is going to buck at it and run the other way. So you can't, you have to be subtle. You have to drop subtle hints. And you cannot push in any way or they will absolutely go, no, fuck you. I'm not absolutely doing anything like that. No, no way. Never. No. You know? And that's that's reminiscent a lot of a lot of my childhood. My mom was very um, I was an only child. So my mom was was, you know, pushing and putting a lot of pressure on me. And I absolutely bucked the system any chance I could get. You know, I mean, I was I was a young fucking, you know, pothead skater punk, you know, <laughs> and I was not going to let my mom tell me what to do. And what's funny is once I became a parent, all of those things that she preached and pushed on me, I started doing to my kids. And I I had to apologize to her. I realized, holy shit, like you were right about a lot of this stuff. You know? We did learn from our parents is like, okay, yeah, they were right, but we need to go about it a different way. Right, yeah. To them what it did to us. Yeah. I I grew up in a house with very little rules. But, you know, um, I wouldn't make kids have rules, but be sort of free range kids, you know, like there are boundaries but pretty far out there. You're free range, you know, but if you cross the boundary that I have to step in and I've had to do it a couple of times. But for the most part, I think kids need, you know, less helicopter parenting and forcing and, and stress on them. Like you need to suggest and give advice. And if they choose not to, to do that and they want to go to the school hard knocks, what can you do? Mm-hmm. You can just give advice. Yeah, yeah. Some people just need to learn the hard way. And we found out that our kids are determined to do that. Yeah, they're very, very stubborn well, and hard headed. Like, like us. Like we us. Determined to do shit the hard way. We fucking did, didn't we? No. Kids. Kids, but kids. Fuck them kids. <laughs> <laughs> you want to read some shit? Are we doing? Are we doing some batch bow wow Sean shitty reviews? <laughs> That's the theme song you came up with. That I, that's what we're going with tonight. <laughs> I love it. Anyway. Yeah. To quote Night of Demons, my favorite. All right. So here we go. Sean City Reviews. Uh, one out of ten. Horrendous. This is from Eddie Larson. I am so tired of people applauding films just because they are old. This film out and out sucked. Not scary. <laughs> not funny. Not clever or good for one minute. Absolutely awful. An utter waste of time, and I cannot stand when people. S- say to please not remake this why not worst case scenario won't be as awful i've heard about them remaking this and took advice to rent the original to hear it was nominated at one time is unaccessible unacceptable jeesh the same year giant came out this actually graced that stage i recommend you do not waste your time save your money stay home and watch american idol the girl on that show would be more interesting Okay. Um, Eddie. I need a review of that yeah. review. <laughs> so our next Notion. one star comes from the aptly named Pumping Iron. Uh, okay. Pumping Iron calls this a basket of boring. Hmm. For me, this movie did not stand up to the test of time. When I saw this movie during the 20th century, it frightened me. Tonight, as I watched this movie, I had to take many breaks because I was so bored. Some of the actors gave standout performances while others either overreacted or just were not memorable. I thought Patty McCormick, who played Rhoda, gave a memorable performance as the heartless killer. Nancy Kelly's performance as Rhoda's mother was too overreacted and staged for the 21st century. 
um, view and review. Um, and I had to dip into some three stars because there actually weren't that many one stars. Um, so three out of ten here. Oh, the 50s. Or should I say, ugh, the 50s. <laughs> how did they do it? I mean, how did people watch movies back then and enjoy them? I'm being too harsh, perhaps, because there are some good ones. Gunslinger, Alice in Wonderland, The Day the Earth Stood Still, and one of my all-time favorites, 12 Angry Men. The bad seed, however, is The Pits. The Pits. Who fucking says that? <laughs> a boomer. And, and he follows up with, the movie plot was titillating, though the movie is in need of some modernization. I know the 50s are supposed to be the good old days when all things were pure and good, but that didn't make for good movies. An update and an upgrade is needed. This movie was too long and too verbose. Like a play, they talked out everything. Between Christine Penmark, Monica Breedlove, and Hortense Daigle, there was entirely too much talking that didn't do anything for the movie. The Bad Seed could use an upgraded script with a little more scenery, a little less speechifying, and a lot less overreacting. Oh, somebody who doesn't like to listen to people talk because they have to pay attention. Yeah. Fuck you. Dude. <laughs> yeah, really. And also, like, in the Hays Code era, they can't show, you know, violence on screen back then. So it's like, well, how else are they going to convey these plot points without having characters talk about it? Right. I mean, you got to think it was years later when Psycho came out that it was a huge thing. They showed a flushing fucking toilet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <Did> you know? <laughs> it was scandalous. It was scandalous. We talked about that in our Psycho episode. Um, yeah, but like I said, you know, I've said this before, many of the old films, they were just pulled from plays. So they act like a play. Like Casablanca was a play called Everybody Comes to Rick's. And they just pulled that from the play. Because they had, they pounded this shit out in like weeks, made this shit in weeks. There's not too many location shots, if there are location shots. You know, it's all about the dialogues. That's what I love about old movies. You have to pay attention. And, the, and what you can accomplish with just dialogue, if it's done well, and I think it is done well here, everything that's said matters. Everything, there's no fluff, there's no filler, there's no bullshit. Everything that is said and every encounter and every conversation matters to, to the plot of this film. So those people are just those people that just get really bored. Listen, you know, like they don't want to pay attention. They want to look at their phones and they want to pay attention. And I'm just like, you know, so I we do old movies. I'm like, you need to pay attention or you're going to not know what the fuck's going on. You're going to miss something that's going to mean something later because all of it means something. It's not just people talking. It's the plot. Yeah. And that's something I learned from a lot of the classic movies that she's shown me, you know, especially in my favorite genre of classic movie is the old gangster film. Yeah. You know, the old Eddie, the old Eddie G's and and Humphrey Bogart, you know, James Cagney and stuff. And, you know, it is it is all dialogue. They didn't have special effects or, or, you know, very lightly, you know, makeup effects, things like that. And they didn't have CGI. They didn't have, you know, anything interesting other than, you know, the dialogue and, you know, and the expressions that they wore on their faces and the body language and stuff. And so you definitely have to pay attention you know, when you watch these and just like what she said about how, you know, back then they would pull all these movies from plays. It's a lot like today where you you get nothing but fucking reboots mm. and remakes of the same shit that you see over and over. But it's like, you know, when you when you take from a play and make a film, you're taking that play and giving it to a broader audience, you know, because back then, you know, you could only catch a play in certain places 
not everyone could go see it. But then you put something like that on the big screen, you're giving that to a wider audience, you know, which I think, you know, is, is really cool. And, you know, yeah, OK, they overreacted and they, they did all that stuff. But these were stage actors, exactly. you know, and you they kept the cast. Yeah. And Patty McCormick, when they filmed this, because she had been touring with the show, you know, she was like almost 12. But they so they they kind of the way that they styled her and the way that they cut her dresses uh, were to make her look a little bit younger because at, because she she started the role at like eight or so the the role that you know the age that the character was supposed to be but she grew up a little bit so they had to like make her look younger um, to keep playing the role. Which I think enhances it even enhances the weirdness a little bit more. I don't know if that was intentional, but she the way she's dressed and the way she moves, she's obviously a little older than that. It makes it even a little weirder, like a little yeah. more off-putting, like a little more something's not quite on the level here. Yeah, because we start off this movie and the mom's like, something's not right, right away. Yeah, the mom knows right away. As soon as we come <laughs> in this movie, you know, she asks the teacher in the first 10 minutes, she's asking the teacher. So is my kid, you know, okay? Yeah, because we obviously, and, and like, like you were saying, it does add to that sort of weirdness because – she also very mature for her age and she has the slyness and the cunning and the meticulousness that's far beyond her years. I don't even have that kind of meticulousness, you know, at, at my age. So, you know, it's just like, but I think, you know, this harkens into like some real life, you know, Ted Bundy. This was an attractive, charismatic guy. Mm-hmm. Who was a fucking serial killer. I mean, and this is, that's the sort that Rhoda was. She was attractive. She had that enchanting smile. She was also a child. And nobody would even entertain the thought that a child could be a murderer. And done multiple murders. Like, um, they don't really touch on it in the film. But in the book and the play, they do go more into she wanted a dog. Especially in the book. Um, She wanted a dog. So she got a dog. She got tired of the dog after a couple weeks, and she shoved it out of a fucking window and killed it. And it was just sort of like one of those unfortunate accidents. I'm like, why was the dog upstairs in the fucking window? Like, why didn't they ask questions then? Like, oh, that was unfortunate. Like, I would be like, what the fuck? How do you get a dog out? What? (laughs) Yeah, so, so, you know, and that goes into, like, you know, because he's told me that the signs that they look for in children – um, that they're going to be psychopaths or sociopaths or, or, you know, serial killers. And one of them is harming animals very young. Yeah. Um, and you our serial killers started. That. Yeah. You saw that in Dahmer and, and, you know, I mean, he was, he had a barn where he, you know, out in the, or a shed, you know, behind his, his house where he would go and put these carcasses in battery acid so that he could keep like the skulls and the bones and stuff as souvenirs. Yeah. His treasure box. Yeah. And Rhoda has also the trinkets. Well, let's not get into Dahmer's treasure box. I don't want to. Keep, I don't want to. Talk. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, but I mean, Rhoda also has that. You know, this is before really this stuff had been nailed down. They didn't start like really studying this in children so many years later. But yeah, all the signs. You know, the the animal thing. Uh, well, I mean, she was straight up just murdering people. So bedwetting like, and fire starting, right? Animal cruelty, yeah. bedwetting yes. and fire starting. Yes, yes. and um, yeah. Yeah, she has a lot of the signs. Um, so, I, you know, it's very interesting that now we know this, but back then it wasn't like a documented, you know, thing that people referred to. It was just things that she did, things that happened. And, 
you know, and parents, they never want to think the worst of their children. They never want to think these things. But the mom, you know, I like that we start and she's already giving us vibes. Like, hmm. And you see this little girl and you're just like, oh, she's so cute. But the mom doesn't trust her, so maybe I should. Right. <laughs> it's very unsettling. Uh, Dave. I, the movie The Omen, to me, uh, which is uh, probably my favorite horror movie of all time. There's, mm-hmm. there's so many parallels with this. The mother who pretty much from the word go knows that something's off about her kid. I mean, she's, she tells, she even tells the, uh, the doctor because the doctor confides to um, Gregory Peck later that she doesn't think the child's his or hers. Sorry. Uh, so many parallels. And uh, I, I just, and the omen came along what? So 15, 16 years later. Um, and it, it touches on a lot of the same themes. Although in this case, the child is actually the devil where in, yeah. in Rhoda's case, <laughs> yeah, she's just, she's just psychotic. But um, I, I think, uh, a discussion of the omen versus this film is it would be very interesting um the mother uh oh, oh, the to, uh, to her eventual death she realizes that her child uh in, in the film remake of the bad seat she doesn't die in the stage version she does but i i think the omen touches on a lot of the same themes she she knows something's wrong no one believes her i mean no one believes her until it's completely obvious yeah, yeah. so it's way too late the monkeys yeah. and the giraffes knew in the omen they knew yeah. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) there's a there's a plethora of films out there with, you know, deadly children. I mean, Children of the Damned, like it it, that or Village of the Damned, like it. it, Those are creepy to me, Mm -hmm. you know, because I have to go to sleep at night and God knows if one of my kids is going to sneak into my room and (laughs) stab me in the chest like that's to me, that's eerie. Yeah, Asher, when he would buzz me, he'd climb out of his crib, he would just come and stand at the edge of my bed. And I woke up one night, and he was just standing there. I'm like, oh, my fucking God. Yeah. It scared the shit out of me. Yeah. But he would just like to get in bed with me, but he just hadn't done it yet. So he was just kind of standing there, and a little two-year-old kid, and I'm like, ah. Yeah, and and my, my middle daughter, Isis, she would, she would sleepwalk. And mm-hmm. it used to scare me because at the time, I lived in a, a – a, two-story townhouse and her bedroom you walk out of her door and it goes straight down the stairs and so at one point i was like putting up like uh you know like the 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 dog guards or the cat the cat guards that you would put you know in the doorway so that the animals couldn't get into a room i had to put one of those up so that she would run into it and wake herself up because it it used to freak me out but there were a couple times where she'd sleepwalk into my room and I would wake up and she's standing at the edge of my bed and her eyes are closed and she's just standing there. I used to do the same thing to my mom. I, I would walk into her room. Apparently I had a lot of sleep issues. I still do, but I would sleepwalk and I would sleep sometimes with my eyes open. And so I, I and I used to, my mom would always put me to bed in like these long nightgowns. I wore nightgowns forever. That's why I won't go near one right now at this point in my life. I growing up until I was 13, I wore fucking these long frilly nightgowns. So I was wearing one. And I guess I wandered into a room out probably six or something, just stood at the end of her bed, eyes open, long white nightgown, just staring. But I was asleep. I have no memory of it. She said it scared the shit out of her to the point where she couldn't move. Oh, man. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I can imagine that now. Like, if it was just, you know, our kids were younger and that happened, I'd be like, Ooh, yeah. I'm just going to pull the covers over my head and hope you don't <laughs> or something. But, yeah. So... I guess we should move into reviews. Yeah. I, um, of course, I'm going to go first. Um, I'm going to defend this, but I'm giving it a 10 out of 10 penmanship medals. 
no fucking way. <laughs> that, I had that. I was going to do pinmanship medals, too. Oh I think that's hilarious. <laughs> no, you're good. You're okay, good. so I'm going to defend my 10 out of 10 pinmanship medals. Um, no, we didn't get the ending. That would have been better. But I'm willing to sacrifice the ending to get the movie that we got because they were pushing boundaries. They This was just barely... Like they got away with some shit that I think they they sneaked by uh, with. Um, so I and I think this is a very important film, and I think you know it should be talked about more in the horror community. It's very influential, and I think we covered a lot of why it was, um, why this movie is like an essential horror movie, an early psychological horror movie, because that's a whole like subgenre now. And uh, yeah, so I'm willing to sacrifice the ending. Would I have preferred the the original ending? Yes. But am I happy overall that we got the movie? Yes. So I think it was just a matter of sacrifice. And even so, um, you know, I, I did say in chat that this is not a supernatural film. And it really isn't. I mean, lightning strike could just be lightning strike. But, you know, it's supposed to be seen as like sort of God striking her down. But um, so that would be a little supernatural, I guess. But, you know, overall, I, I, I don't buy that. I just feel like it was lightning storm. But anyway, um, <laughs> the, the movie itself is so important to me. I'm so glad that we could have this conversation. I'm so glad other people could share my love for it. Um, I'm so glad that we can pay attention to it because I, I think it needs more attention. Nobody talks about this anymore. And I think it's too important to pass up um, as a film and its, you know, legacy and uh, all the things it's inspired. And it's just really an important piece to even if you don't like it, you need to see it. Um, but I, I highly recommend it. You may not care about the ending, but you will care about everything else. It is in black and white. If you're against black and white, I urge you to, like, fix that. Suck it up. Buddy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I, I converted many an anti-black and white person, you know, um, mm. because I know the films to direct them to. But, yeah, so 10 out of 10 penmanship medals. Glad we had this movie. Glad we had this conversation. Maybe more people will talk about it from listening to this or give it a shot. Yeah, and I, you know, I'm gonna give this nine out of ten flaming handyman. Uh. <laughs> Swallow me a frog. <laughs> Swallow me a frog. Uh, I, I loved, I loved him in this. He was so amazing. Yeah, um, yeah, and you know, this is one of those classic films that that Candy turned me on to. That you know, it was, it was a winner. Um, but she, she hasn't done me wrong yet. Yay. Um, I won't I jinx it. But yeah, I mean, all in all, this film was great. It was it was chilling. It was creepy. Um, You know, Rhoda was just just eerie, you know, and and just, you know, uh, had no remorse whatsoever, you know, and as, as a fan of true crime, like I could totally see that I didn't think it was unrealistic at all. Um you know, I did the first time we watched this, I did kind of feel that whole like, you know, oh, they, you know, they, the characters overreacted or you know, the actors overacted or whatever. But going back and watching this a second time and, and realizing that this came straight from the stage and that these were stage actors playing these roles, like it all made sense. And it actually made me see the film in a different perspective and enjoy it that much more. Um but I thought the cast was great. I thought the story was great. Um, like like I said, my my only um, nitpick with this film was the ending. I, I thought that they should have ended it, 
you know, with uh, the mother, you know, dying from her self-inflicted gunshot wound and Rhoda skipping down the hallway, you know, or like Dave said, you know, holding Monica's hand, asking about the birds as they as they walked out, you know, and it fade to black. But uh, all in all, I mean, it was a great film. So nine out of ten flaming handymen. <laughs> yeah, I am also going to give this uh, nine out of ten um, steel heeled little girl shoes. Like <laughs> um, I am docking just a little bit just because of like the the mandatory haze code ending of like oh we can't you know let an evil character get away with it so oh God took care of that and also the fact that when the lightning hits her it looks like she explodes. Crash on fire. Um. Yeah, I really don't. I did notice that it is like definitely stagey because, you know, it was a stage production. The, most of the actors are stage performers, but I don't think it really detracts from the film. Um, I was never bothered by the staginess of this production at all. Um, I think, you know, like the performances were really solid. And I think um, young Patty McCormick is just scary as hell in this movie. That way she turns emotions off and on when she's sucking up to the adults like oh am i the most beautiful mommy and then like like a, a switch flips and she's just like stone cold and yeah. just cold-blooded i uh that great performance i think this um movie was like way ahead of the the curve as far as uh breaking you know ground with this subject matter and it's still so accurate as far as uh, modern literature about psychopathy so i really appreciate how well that's held up say compared to psycho yeah, yeah. Psycho is a great movie, but the the explanation at the end of like what's going on in Norman's head is just like a hot mess. It's not. Yeah, yeah it's like yeah, it's not really realistic. But this movie is held up beautifully. So nine out of ten steel heeled shoes. Okay, uh, Dave. All right, I'm gonna give it nine out of ten uh, poor betting choices. I was wondering why it is that that the the handyman would cho- choose to make his secret bed by the furnace out of like shredded paper. Excelsior. Seems like a poor choice to me. Excelsior, yeah. I need to look up the history. Like, why is it Excelsior? I need to look that up. I was yeah. Like, is that was that a? It was made of. I know it's no longer used. Was that a trademark name back then? It's, I think it's, it's just the name of the material. Um, it's just shredded paper. Yeah, it's some kind of special paper. Yeah, I know it's I know it's mentioned in Return of the Living Dead when they have to put the body in the Excelsior. Yes, the he says Excel. Right, Excelsior. Yeah, yeah so it must, it must mean something. Yeah, it's a material, I believe. But I give it nine out of ten I, only because well, first of all, I, I I've only seen it once, so I can't give it ten out of ten after just one viewing, and also uh, the fact that it is overacted because. But I think it, it's sort of um, that's not necessarily a flaw, but it's a little off-putting unless you know the history of the film and, and the director um, and the ending. Yeah. The end, we talked about the ending. It's, the ending just seems tacked on. Like we it need was. her to die. You know, it was literally that we need her to it die was. by literally the hand of God comes down and kills her. But really what a great, what a great film. What a great example of a film, a filmmakers, a filmmaker and his crew trying to get in, sneak in as much as they could underneath or past the uh, the moral authority of the time, it's subversive, which I think I talked about in our last episode. I love it because it's subversive. It's a little blonde mm-hmm. white 
girl in her beautiful little tap shoes. I mean, what's more innocent than a little girl in tap shoes that she uses to whack the fucking shit out of the kid who won the penmanship medal? You know, it's just she murdered I, the I, fuck out of him. She and she and not just she and, and he come back up for air. And she just started whacking him again because he, you know, he, the, little, the little shit was was uh, you know, was persistent. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's great. I, I, I want to watch it again. I need to watch it again. Uh, to uh, take in more about it, um, I, I, I'm, I'm happy to have been able to see it finally. I don't think I ever would have watched it except for have being on this podcast, and I'm grateful for that. Oh well, I'm so glad. I, I really think it's sort of like important that people do see this horror um, fans, especially if you're into psychological horror. This is like some groundwork. This is a blueprint. This is a starter, and I think it's it's done tremendously well. Um, I'm glad everybody gave it high marks. I know I gave it 10 out of 10, but I said I defended it. So I did defend it, but, you know, um, I think everybody's reviews were pretty accurate. So I, I seek people out, and that was the point of doing this, is maybe somebody will go and revisit this film. And it is definitely better on subsequent watches. Like, you get more into it. Um, yeah, you get into it the first time, but, like, the second time, you're going to notice things that you didn't notice the first time around. And it just all comes together a little bit more, um, you know, um, going into it already knowing what you know from the first viewing. Um, so definitely it's it's a, it's a good rewatch kind of film. Um, and every time I watch it, I'm still like chilled, you know, like just what a chilling, that's, that's how I view this movie. It's very chilling. It's creepy as fuck. I mean, you just feel like this nastiness over you. You're like, ugh. Oh my God! Like, and there's one thing I wanted to mention also. It's it's kind of a long film for its day. It's over it's over two hours long. Two hours. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah which is. which was kind of long for its day, and that even struck me. I'm like, wow, this movie's going on a while now. And I. Yeah. I but yeah, you know, I think I think it's because they they almost it, pulled exactly from the play. And yeah. Plays tend to run that long because they work in acts. And you know? yeah, you got the intermission. Right, right. So that, I think, factors into the length. But it doesn't feel like it's two hours long to me, I guess. Maybe just because I've seen it so many times and I really enjoyed it each time that it just doesn't feel long. Yeah. It feels like, you know, like a regular movie from the 50s to me. But, uh, you know, it, again, like I said, it's it's one that you will, every time you watch it, you're going to glean something from that, yeah. that viewing. I, I will say I did find it funny when... When uh, near the end, when the mom goes to give her her new vitamins and she pours like 20 of them into her hand and, and she's and like, like yeah. so many. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. Yeah, I love that. We were laughing about it. She's like, yeah, just keep. <laughs> just keep taking them on. You're fine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because we knew that Rhoda would take her vitamins. So the mom was just thinking, of, like, I'm going to save her and blah, blah, blah. But. Either all sleeping pills, so she, she would have died if yeah. if the gun hadn't been heard. But I, I'm always thinking, like, why don't you take them yourself? I mean, it would be a little bit more like we're together. I don't know, like, I don't know how like suicide. She's happens. punishing. She's punishing herself yeah. with a violent death. With a violent death. She's punishing herself throughout the entire film, and that was just right. Yeah. Right. And her- um. But- yeah. Which and that's you know that's a that's not typical for murder suicides because typically murder suicides everybody goes by the same method that's what i'm saying you know it's, particularly it's, women women don't necessarily don't normally kill themselves by gunshot as far as i from what i've read it, it tends to be more male more male yeah yeah men do that yeah so yeah this movie is it, it just breaks a lot of ground 
Um, you know, and I just hope that people who are listening to this will seek it out if you have not seen it. I know we talked a lot about it, but she, it still is, you, you still need to experience it, especially, you know, being a horror fan. If you want to go back and look at the, you know, the groundwork, here it is, uh, especially for like these type of movies. And one of the, you know, scariest little, to me, it is one of the scariest films of all time with the fucking kid. I mean, there are quite a few now, but like it was really the first one. And so, and I think it was done really well here. So, yeah. So I, I just, I, I, one last point. I just love that you see like the things you see in this film, you see a, at the very end, you see a, a little girl struck by lightning and killed, you know, you see, you learn that she um, knocked her old, her friend down the stairs because she wanted the globe. You know, they decided they could show all this and allude to all this. But when it came to, like, the bedroom, can we show a king-size bed? No, it's still got to be two twin beds. They can't be in the same bed together. Now, see, that you know, was we something can... <laughs> the Hayes Cup was very, very strict upon. I just love that that was the line they wouldn't cross. You know, we're going to yeah, cross, well, you know, a murderous eight-year-old. Sleeping in the same bed. You know, incest and, and latent homosexuality and all this, but not, no, they're, they're still twin beds. We're not doing that. <laughs> we're not crossing that line. The latent homosexuality, I think, just went past them. And, uh, you know, the ancestral stuff, I think, went past them. You know, I really, like I said, they, they think because the stuff. bed was visual, the bed was something you could see. Right. But if you're inferring something, you know, most of the time the people reviewing this shit, they're, they're not paying super close attention. They've got 15 other movies they've got to review today or look through. You know, I think that they were just like, what can we get away with? And I think it, it was almost like uh, a, a game. Like, what can we yeah. get away with? And we're going to throw in this plot. one thing so we can get this other thing. Yeah, we'll sacrifice the ending. That's what I'm saying. But we got the movie and I'm OK with sacrificing the ending for the movie because we'll give the twin bed, bed so we can get the little girl setting the guy on fire. You know, I was like, yeah. oh, fair trade. And that's a horrifying moment. There's, this is filled with some horrifying shit. Love it. Um, way into it. But, yeah, I want to do some more classic films in here. This is one of the first that we're, we've really tackled and we've got some more coming up. Speaking of which, I will bring up the schedule um, before we head into the plugs. Um, coming up, we have An American Werewolf in London. Uh, we're going to yeah. be doing Halloween 2018, yes. that version yes. of it. Uh, we have Ghoul's Night Out, um, The Stepfather, that Eric and I will be doing. We are doing Maniac, the original Maniac. Mm. Um, we are, have a horror business coming up, uh, Goodfellas. And uh, we're going to talk about Scream. I know that's what everybody's got a boner for. Scream. We're going to talk about Scream. So I'll stop there. But we, we do have a lot coming up. Uh, so that's just a little taste. And, uh, yeah, I guess we'll do plugs. I'll go first. I'll just sacrifice myself. Uh, you can find links to uh, The House That Screams. Uh, you know, obviously this podcast. Um, you can find uh, our Twitter link. All Everything that you need to know is on my link tree. It's link tr.ee slash candy the final girl um check out my um my instagram because it covers basically uh we i do a lot of cool promo shit for the shows and i do a lot of announcements on there um and also there's a link to final girl cosmetics us which is uh you know eric and i's uh horror makeup and we have some big stuff coming and i'm really excited about them but i'm not going to say too much because i'm gonna do some little teasers about it but uh, we have some stuff that's coming very, very soon. It should be here by the time you hear this episode, but, you know, whatever. Right now, it's coming soon. <laughs> so you're time traveling right now. <laughs> <laughs> and you can find me on Instagram and Twitter, Sean of the Dead. 
Um, shout out to everybody listening. Thank you. Um, and to everyone here, I love you. And huge shout out to Rob, Mac, and Nico who could not be here tonight. I know Rob and Mac or Rob and Nico were busy, and Mac we can't get to watch a black and white movie to save. Him. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, no, he's busy. But you know, shout out to them. Um, you can find them at the Action Drunkies. Um, you can find my link tree. And you can, yeah, Nico's uh, El Jefe de Horror. The boss. Um, so yeah, seek them out, check them out. And I'm sure they'll be back next week. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, this week, actually. They'll be back yeah. on Thursday. Yeah, Thursday. That's right. I know That's nobody's right. going to miss Thursday. Um, Erica? <laughs> yeah. Uh, find me at myhorrificlife.com on Instagram, at myhorrificlife. And also, I want to say thanks to everyone who donated to Andrew Deboff's Pink Tutu Challenge Fundraiser. Uh, we raised a little bit over $5,000. All of that's going to the charities that he wanted to select, and he's going to cover the the payroll stuff for the brewery out of his own pocket. Oh, nice. Yeah. We nice were, um, yeah, super nice guy. So, yeah, yesterday, which, granted, people will be time traveling, but for me, yesterday was August 15th, um, <laughs> Sunday, and uh, he did, like, a little presentation ceremony, gave out $1,000 checks to each charity, so pretty cool yeah that's yeah, awesome why do we do that in tandem ah. <laughs> <laughs> i was like silent okay uh, silent no yeah <laughs> <laughs> snacks Christine. yeah what do you think uh dave just uh yeah mac rob and nico it's not the same without y'all here yeah um um it's just yeah it's a lot of fun love i love being here thank you so much thanks to all the fans listening and um, I appreciate it. I love being here. Thank you. Aww. Oh, and be good to each other. I always try to say that. Be yes. good to each other. Yes, it please. doesn't cost anything. Be nice to each other. Mm-hmm. Right. Random acts of kindness. Yeah. yeah, just don't be a dick. I know that's a cliche now, but it's a cliche for a reason. Don't be a dick. <laughs> <laughs> it's don't just as easy to not be a dick as it is to be a dick. Yeah. <laughs> don't be a dick. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. So thank you guys so much for this conversation and for, um, you know, doing some research and watching the film. Um, got more classics I'm going to spring on you, but uh, we started off pretty strong with this one. And I, I'm very happy that we got to do this. So this meant a lot to me. And, yeah, thank you guys. Thank you. Definitely. Thank you. you guys have a great night. <laughs> yeah, Good night.